You're listening to episode six of West Bend's podcast, Music for a While. We would like to begin by thanking our sponsors of this episode, Finley and Associates, as well as Cameco. Your support allows us to continue to create and innovate new ways of connecting through music. So thank you. On today's episode, Barb Hobart and Brian Finley unwrap the history and cast of characters that surround the Hallelujah Chorus. Hi, this is Brian Finley. Welcome to Music for a While. Once again, Barb Hobart is with me with her bag full of amusements and observations and insights into the wonderful world of music. Today, Handel's Hallelujah Chorus. Well, if that doesn't make you feel like standing, I don't know what will. Barb, are you standing? Uh, no, because you know what? That's actually a myth. Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a okay. few minutes. But, but, but before, we, before we do, I wanted to ask you, do you remember your first hallelujah? I do. When I was in high school, a salesman came to the door selling encyclopedias. I think it was the Cyclopedia Americana. And my dad decided that it would be useful for me in school, so he bought it. And coming with it was a record player, which was the first one we ever had. And with <laughs> and with it were records. And one, and I, I think it was the British Choir, was Handel's Messiah. And that was the first time that I had ever heard it. And then later, as a high school student, I went to a live performance in Hamilton and heard it again. But when I had it again was when I was at teacher's college. This is not one of my finer moments, I have to say. I had um, a practice practicum teacher who didn't like me very much. I can't imagine why. <laughs> Neither can I. <laughs> <laughs> but she gave my partner something really exciting to do, and I got the Hallelujah Chorus. Oh, poor thing. Yes, with this class that was largely boys, as I recall. And I did not know what to do, and it was my mom who suggested something, and so I did this. I did the Hallelujah Chorus, and I divided them up into sopranos, altos, tenors, and bass, and explained how those voices worked. And when they heard the sopranos, or their part, singing Hallelujah, they had to stand. And that's how I discovered that the basses sing the word Hallelujah 44 times in the Hallelujah Chorus. Good Lord, that's a good workout. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a magnificent piece of music, this Hallelujah Chorus, and of course it belongs to a bigger piece. And uh, that bigger piece, of course, is Messiah. So what can you tell us about Messiah? Well, Handel was in deep financial trouble because the London audience had kind of lost its taste for Italian opera. Now, he had done oratorios before, I think one called Esther, But then he was invited to Dublin to do a series of charity concerts. And he premiered the work there, Messiah, which he called Messiah, a sacred oratorio. And it was an instant hit. It was very interesting because he did it in a new theater. And the theater would hold 700. But they issued a warning and asked women to come to this performance without wearing hoops in their skirts. And, oh, and for men to leave their swords at home. <laughs> and then they opened up all the windows so the people outside could hear as well. And it was a huge success. 
Well, now this is interesting because it's not, Handel was not really known as an oratorio composer in these days. As you say, he came to London uh, in the early 1700s, around 1712 or so, as, a, as an opera composer. And he was, he was uh, very, very successful producing Italian operas. So what changed? Well, I think audience tastes. First of all, they didn't really understand Italian and they wanted things in their own language, in English. And secondly, operas were really expensive to stage because you had all the costuming, you had, um, you know, orchestra, you had all kinds of things that just increased the cost, including your soloists, I guess. Um, and so Handel was in great financial difficulty. And that's when he switched because the oratorios, number one, they were done in English, so everybody understood them. A lot of them were based on biblical stories, which they all knew, and they were a lot less expensive to produce. And so they really took on, um, or took off, I should say, in, in London society. But it's an amazing thing for Handel to jump ships and to, and to go with the, with the public flow so effectively. He, he was very smart, he, like, and he was a, understood his audience. Um, he tried to revive Italian opera, but sort of gave up and realized that it wasn't going to go anywhere. And, be, and the other thing is, the oratorios also reached the middle class, which hadn't gone to opera. So it also meant that his audiences grew because there was a whole group of people that didn't really go to opera that would go to an oratorio. Well, maybe we should just stop for a second and talk about the difference between opera and oratorio. Well, of course, opera was based more on, on not necessarily on secular ideas, but definitely more. And it tended to be more arias with little chorus, whereas the oratorio were kind of the other way around. The choruses became dominant. And there's also this huge dramatic element as well, too, right? I mean, the, the, it, part of the expense of those Italian operas had to do with these huge sets and huge effects that were going on and rainstorms and chariots and oh, all yes. kinds of crazy, crazy things. And, and, the, and the oratorios really were something quite different. They were. And the, one of uh, Handel's operas, he used sparrows live sparrows uh, didn't go over very well with the audience <laughs> literally <laughs> and the other thing that's fascinating is that in the italian operas the london audience were like crazy wild about their sopranos and so they had right. these factions and they would hiss and boo with the ones that they didn't like and there were even incidences where there were cat fights between the two sopranos on stage um, and also, Handel, um, with two of them, when he was writing their arias, he had to make sure that they were the exact same length, the exact same number of notes. <laughs> I don't think he had to do that with his oratorios. Well, did he have to, did he get along as well with his sopranos oh, as he did with his public? No. There is a wonderful <laughs> story about um, Francesca Cusoni who was rather a large woman, and she was giving Handel a hard time about a piece. Actually, she refused to sing it. Now, there are two conflicting stories. One says that he lifted in, her in the air and threatened to throw her out the window. Another one says that he held her upside down out of the window. But he also <laughs> used the phrase, you may be a witch, but I am the very devil himself. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he certainly got results, however he did it. 
anyway, so this, uh, so the the development of the oratorio, of course, based on uh, presenting a biblically themed uh, piece in the oratory of a church, hence its name, uh, was I, I guess originally intended as a religious piece. It was, and you know yeah. that's why he had problems when he went from Dublin to London because they presented it in a theater. And mm. a lot of people thought, well, you, you can't really do a religious piece in the theater. And so it wasn't well received when it was first done. I've got to, I've got to tell you about this, this other thing. When Bach, who incidentally lived at the same time, uh, almost exactly to the year, when he presented his St. Matthew Passion in Leipzig in 1727, which predates Messiah by 10 years or so, uh, apparently someone in the congregation said, well, what will come of this? God save us, my children. It's just as if, if one were at the opera comedy. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I think there was a mix in, in what people, how people could digest. Well, and there's some suggestion that the reason he went to Dublin to do Messiah was to get away from the wrath of the Anglican bishops. But he ran into problems in Dublin as well from a very unusual source. At this point, particular point in time, Jonathan Swift, writer of Gulliver's Travels, was the dean of St. Patrick's Cathedral, and Handel wanted to use local singers for his Messiah, not, not in the solos, but in the chorus, right. and um, he, uh, Jonathan Swift threatened <laughs> that he wouldn't allow any of his singers to be involved in this production, which was going to be held in a theater. Goodness. Because it was held in the theater. Because it was held in the theater. But it, the interesting thing is he also, he, as I say, he had to rely on unfamiliar singers, most of whom were not professionals. And one bass was named Jansen. He trained as a prince, printer, but he was recommended to handle as a good singer with the ability to sight read even the most complicated works. But at the rehearsal, he could only muddle through the pages. An enraged Handel swore at him and said, you scoundrel, did you not tell me you could sing at sight? Yes, sir, replied Jansen, and so I can, but not at first sight. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Barb, tell me, this is, a, this is a piece that does involve words. Now, uh, Handel didn't create the words as well as the music. No, he did not. It was um, a librettist named Charles Jensen. And they had a falling out over this because he felt that Handel didn't take it seriously enough, partly because, as we know, Handel wrote it in the space of about 24 days. And it, so Jennings was not happy and wrote letters to Handel complaining. What would you complain about? Well, exactly. <laughs> Why don't we talk a little bit about uh, how a piece like Messiah can be composed in 24 days? That's, a, that's an astounding Well, the, um, the NPR a music commentator, Miles Hoffman, estimates there are roughly a quarter of a million notes in Messiah. And at the speed with which he wrote it, Handel working 10 hours a day, he would have had to have write, written 15 notes a minute. <laughs> However, there were no copyright rules in those days. So no. Handel plagiarized himself. 
He plagiarized Telemann. I mean, he, um, the Hallelujah Chorus, <laughs> which talks about the reign of God, came from something he had used earlier, which was a praise to Bacchus, the god of drink. So, <laughs> Gosh, it's like the American National Anthem. <laughs> and the For Unto Us a Child is Born had been a, an Italian duet and something else. So, I mean, it's not but like it was, he... It was common practice, though, was it, was it not? I mean, you especially to borrow from yourself and to reassemble these things. I mean, let's not forget that there's something like 52 individual parts to, to Messiah. Uh, it is a it is a big piece and complex and it, uh, yes. yeah and you and you're tempted to use some material over and over again but there's also another fascinating thing that I I'm really drawn to and I think that it probably caused a lot of uh, a lot of curious uh, is angst the right word I'm not sure but development uh, after Handel and that is the fact that he really wrote it in a form of shorthand uh, he did he did not as was the custom of the day, did not write every single note for every single player. And this is very, very interesting. It was written essentially from the bottom up, meaning that, oh. the, that the, the bass part was, uh, was written out uh, perfectly, uh, and the melody often was written out perfectly. And then, of course, the four uh, choral parts would have been written out note by note. But the rest, the rest of the orchestra, was left to the copyists of the day. And good Lord, you'd really want to trust your uh, copyists with, with material Ooh. like this. But it, it's, uh, it reminds me that it's not, uh, it's not unlike jazz music, where you have, uh, and jazz music a lot in the fake books, for example, have a tune and they have chord symbols. This is very, very similar, except that they did have uh, bass, uh, really clearly defined basses. And it's it's very very interesting experience if you actually turn your hearing around, listening to this music and listen from the bottom up. Uh, at the very beginning, you know you have this at the beginning. You know, and we all recognize that. But underneath, if you if you focus your attention down here, you have. have all kinds of energy and excitement and things going on there that you actually wouldn't necessarily be always drawn to and it's it's it creates a very interesting dynamic for the whole piece but also as i say it, it sets up this this uh, uh, real challenge for future years to figure out what handle really meant uh, when he wrote when he wrote certain things well, so that's interesting because um, we know that some of the, well, later on, the performances of Messiah were to benefit um, the foundling hospital. Yes. Um, and what he did was he left his score for Messiah to the foundling home so that they could continue to perform it. Wow. Um, and it, I think, like... The, over the years, they made something like seven thousand um, pounds, and this was this was really interesting. I found this fascinating because the man who started this foundling home had been a sea captain, and when he came back to London, he was appalled by some of the conditions in which children lived, <clears throat> and so he wanted to set up this charity, this charitable home, for people who couldn't look after their babies. He tried for years to get funding 
couldn't get anywhere until he discovered he was going about it the wrong way. He, he was appealing to men. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't listening. What? <laughs> <laughs> when he went to the wives, it was a different thing. And they got on board with it and were helping to support this. But he also got artists involved. So, for example, the artist William Hogarth, they, they lined the walls with all this art. And it became a very fashionable thing to go to this place, to the chapel for the Sunday service. And so Handel's Messiah was a huge hit that benefited this I, we nowadays we would call it an orphanage. Wow, amazing. And, you know, quite astute of, of Handel himself to realize the opportunity in this as well. Oh, my goodness, absolutely. Because, you know, he had, before he went and changed over to doing sort of oratorios and things like that, he was broke. Yeah. And yet he, when he died, he was a very wealthy man. Yeah. Well, it's definitely a life-changing piece, this thing. I mean, I, it, you know, that's, a, that's my feeling about it when... For the times that I've done it, I still remember when we did it. Uh, believe it or not, the day after we closed our first production of Jesus Christ Superstar, and it was just such an amazing to perform the Hallelujah chorus after something like uh, Jesus Christ Superstar was was just an earth-shattering thing. And and you know, it's been a f impactful and uh, to people for years upon years. In fact, the two sopranos who first premiered this thing. Christina Maria Avolio and Susanna Cyber. Uh, Susanna Cyber was a rather co colorful character. One thing she was known for was uh, uh, leaving her husband. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was of somewhat ill repute on the stage. She... And she was one of those actresses that, you know, sort of started those reputations and that kind of thing. And it, apparently she was the mezzo here. And she, after she sang He Was Despised, Apparently, at the premiere, apparently, uh, there was a reverend in the crowd that stood up and said, Madam, all of your sins have been forgiven. That is quite <laughs> right. That's quite right. And Handel had trouble with Sopranos kind of throughout his life. There were two, Faustina, uh, was it Bordoni, and Francesca Cusoni, and they fought all the time. And as I say, they were the ones where he had to make sure that he gave them the exact amount. They're those fiery uh, Italians, I tell you. That's, fiery what, that's what it comes down to. Well, let's, let's, um, let's talk about where this piece went and, and what happened with it once it was launched into the world. I, I think it was performed something like 56 times before Handel uh, died. And it was always always something different, always a little bit changed here and a little bit changed there. And uh, it's, it's just remarkable about the, how the piece developed. Well, it is. And in 1859, there was an orchestra of 500, a choir of 5,000, and an audience of 87,769 people. Good Lord. Who counted all these people? I don't know. <laughs> Once he launched this thing into the world, and uh, and then of course once he died, it certainly took on a life of its own. There was an advertisement in in 1787, uh, a couple of decades after his death, uh, at 
that Messiah was going to be performed at Westminster Abbey with over 800 performers. And from there on, it just, it just ballooned. Uh, in 18, uh, 1786, there was another one. Uh, uh, Johann Adam Hiller presented Messiah um, and it, it, with updated scoring uh, in, in the Berlin Cathedral. Uh, and he presented a performance of his revision with a choir of 259, but really accurate uh, numbers. But listen to the orchestra, Barb. There was an orchestra of 87 string players, Oof. 10 bassoons, 11 oboes, 8 flutes, 8 horns, 4 clarinets, 4 trombones, 7 trumpets, timpani, harpsichord, and organ. I said that to Donna this morning, and uh, she said, what, only 4 trombones? <laughs> <laughs> But you think, well, yeah, and the original orchestration uh, is calls for so little. Two trumpets, timpani, yes. uh, two oboes, and strings, and continual. Uh, a huge, vast difference. Do you know that Mozart played around with it and offered an adaptation of it um, in 1789? Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. And he actually, what he did was quite interesting, because he took out the continuo, which is the, the fill-in bits, more or less, and he replaced those with uh, mostly with wind instruments. So there's parts for flutes and clarinets and, and trombones and horns. Uh, but he also couldn't resist recomposing some of the passages and, and rearranging some of the other stuff as well, too. So it was very, uh, very interesting. And apparently Mozart himself was a, was a bit circumspect about his changes. Uh, he wasn't quite sure they really added much improvement, and he was right. I guess that's one genius recognizing uh, another. So then, uh, and then the one, the big one that you uh, you mentioned, um, preceding that, uh, there were presentations of Messiah in New York uh, in 1853, and they had a chorus of 300, and in Boston in 1865 with more than 600. It's kind of a one-upmanship, uh, and then in Britain, Britain, as you say, the the, uh, the great Handel Festival with uh, with thousands upon thousands of people that I don't know someone counted and. Uh, and we're left with that. Yeah, it is really interesting that, you know, you had this period, like even in Toronto, where the Toronto Mendelssohn Choir would do it with, you know, the full Toronto Symphony Orchestra. And then you kind of went back to sort of Handel's time with the much smaller ensembles. And like, for example, the Elmer Eisler singers do it. And I think there's maybe 20, 24 in the, yeah. in the choir when they do it and a very small orchestra. And actually... I did it once. Did you know that? I know. <laughs> we wanted to raise money for a, a new organ, and I had a friend who would agree to kind of conduct it, and we used, I think we used a harpsichord, we used two violins, um, a viola, a cello, timpani, and, of course, a Baroque trumpet. Yeah, you had, you had a wonderful little orchestra for that. Yes, that and I called in a lot of favors. Um, I had friends that sang with the Elmer Eisler singers that came and sang with us. And it, it, it's a wonderful experience to do it, really. It is. And you know, it almost doesn't matter how you do it. I remember one of the first times I did it was in a, was in a different key. And it was still magnificent. It was just fantastic. Well, you know, what my, my late husband used to say, if a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing badly. <laughs> well, your performance was wonderful. I remember that it was just so full of energy and so full of excitement. But, you know, I think it brings up a really interesting aesthetic point, and that is how important is it to adhere to what the original conception was or can a piece actually grow beyond where it starts and and develop beyond what a what a composer's in, uh, 
initial conception is. I think I think that boils down kind of to a matter of taste too. Yeah. Um, and I must say that from my perspective, I like the smaller ensemble. I really do. There, but there is a maybe it, it speaks to the versatility of the piece that you can do it with a huge amount of singers, or you can do it with a small group, and it doesn't lose anything in its yeah, performance. It's I think. You know, it reminds me of a big, huge football stadium, all yelling at the ref at the same time. Well, it's amazing to consider how Messiah has survived all of these uh, re-manifestations. But, you know, it strikes me that it's the Hallelujah Chorus that's particularly hardy in being reinterpreted. It is. It's been used in commercials on TV. But there's one of my favorite ones is on YouTube, and it's called The Silent Monks Sing the Hallelujah Chorus. (laughs) (laughs) And it's really hysterical because there's one little monk who has to keep jumping up in the air so well, how do silent monks sing the Hallelujah Chorus? They have cue cards with the words on oh. it. <laughs> but nice. there's another one. There's a video of a flash mob singing the Hallelujah Chorus in a mall in Canada. And you know that it has been viewed over 47 million times on well, YouTube. Probably it's going to be 48 million after our podcast part. <laughs> well, you know, it strikes me that it's, uh, it's worth re-examining the power of the Hallelujah Chorus. And I think that, you know, if you are sitting in a, in a football stadium uh, with 100,000 other people, you can't do something overly complex. You have to do something very, very basic, simple, straightforward, and powerful uh, if you want to unite that many people. And I think, and I've been thinking about that with the Hallelujah Chorus. And it has, of course, this chord that we all know. And it has this sense of a a very simple chord progression. This chord, to this chord, back to that. And that comes back and back and back in this piece. And it's a fourth, based on a fourth, the interval of a fourth. And it happens all the way through. Even in the the big, main, powerful tune in the middle is based on that fourth. So I love the fourth goes all the way through, right down to the final hallelujah. So I have to interject something here. You're talking about the fourth. Today is May the 4th. Well, there you go. And so may the 4th be with you. And indeed it is. Well, aren't we going to be aren't we going to be enjoying this piece for for millions of years to come? I sure hope we are. And you know, it's been such a powerfully impactful piece, hasn't it, Barb? I mean, it, it's helped people right from the get-go, uh, right to present day. It is probably one of the most recognized pieces of classical music, even by people who don't necessarily follow classical music. Yeah, exactly. But I would like to end with a a little story about Handel because I love this. You know that the Messiah might never have come into creation because in 1704, when Handel was the harpsichordist for the Hamburg Orchestra, he befriended a young musician named Johann Matheson. Now, Matheson was something of a show-off, and at age 23, he produced operas for which he wrote the score, conducted the orchestra, played the harpsichord, and sang... (laughs) <laughs> but 
one performance. Who did costumes, though? <laughs> one performance ended with a near-fatal encounter because his opera Cleopatra was on stage, and the composer himself was singing the part of Antonius, but Antonius gets killed a good halfway before the end of the opera. So he liked to slip down to the orchestra pit and take over at the harpsichord. However, at one performance, Handel refused to give up his seat, and an outraged Matheson challenged Handel to a duel, and the two came to blows outside the stage door. Matheson nearly sounds did like in- Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> yes, Matheson nearly did in his rival when he landed a blow on Handel's chest, except that a large metal coat button stored and stashed in Handel's coat pocket stopped the blade. And Matheson liked to brag in later years that he taught Handel everything he knew about composing. That's a claim that needs to be taken with a big shaker of salt because Matheson never left his native Germany, is now largely forgotten, and Handel became an international celebrity. Well, there you go. What does that have to do with the Messiah? Or is it just Handel's career that it it's just launched? It's just Handel's career because oh. had that sword found its way, we never would have heard the Messiah. But, you know, you mentioned earlier about the uh, all the beneficiaries of this piece and of the of the performances over the years. Well, the, the ones that were held at the Foundling Hospital, the other charity that benefited from this, and I find this really strange, in those days it was known as the Society for Decayed Musicians. <laughs> I know some of those. <laughs> it changed itself to the Royal Society of Musicians, which was a much better title. But Handel, as I said, raised over 7,000 pounds. In those days that was a lot of money right. for, um, for charities. Ben, and it also a- reinvented his career. Right, but there was a gift to the debtor's prison as well, too. There was, yes. It released several people who were in debt. and It's just such a, well, I guess such a liberating piece, all said and done. The number of debtors in Dublin that were excused through the benefit performances of Messiah were 142. Well, it's amazing. And the piece still continues to have such amazing impact on well, its audiences. I'll tell you, the impact it had for me was when I took over as the organist at St. John's, I wanted a new organ because I think, as you know, the one that was there was not so great and to do that we did performances of messiah to raise money for the new organ so every time i play that organ i think of messiah right well it's a transformational piece no doubt and i know for me i have many special feelings about it and and uh, remembrances of wonderful performances and one of my favorites that kind of combines a lot of the things we've been recently talking about is a a reinterpretation of the first part of Messiah uh, against the story of the Little Match Girl, Hans Christian Andersen's story, in a piece that uh, my very good friend Ken Tizard and I composed called Little Match Girl Messiah. And we were really concerned about how best to do the uh, to do the accompaniment of this. And we thought it would be fascinating to, to play with it, much like we were talking about uh, Glenn Gould, uh, a couple of weeks ago with his work in the studio and how much fun he would have had in the in the midi suite and so we took uh, we took Handel's Messiah into the midi suite and we recreated a an accompaniment and it was just an amazing thing to put a live chorus together with this uh, this pre pre arranged thing <laughs> Thank you. 
might agree with Mozart, but it sure was fun. And before we leave with that rendition, can I just mention too that one of my very favorite things, which I have done, is twice is gone to the sing-along Messiah. Oh, absolutely! Where yes. Handel comes out to direct. Yeah, says I love that, that. And don't you love showing up at a show and, and they ask you what part you sing? Yes. <laughs> and I love the fact that um, he comes out as Handel and he, the, the choir starts to sing and he says, God had promised him the ability to come and conduct once a year, but this is what he sends him. <laughs> <laughs> well, Barb, the next time you sing this thing, I hope you have an absolutely glorious time doing it along with all the listeners that'll be soaking it up. <laughs> well, and you, can I mention one other thing? Absolutely. Too? Because when I Boy, lived once in, you get her going, you can't, uh, you can't shut her up. I know. But when I lived in British Columbia, they were doing Messiah and they were looking for somebody to take the rehearsals. You didn't have to take the performance because they brought in um, orchestra members from Vancouver and a conductor from Vancouver. And so I got to do all the rehearsals and had such a ball. I wasn't going to do it because uh, I thought I couldn't. And my late husband said to me, of course you can. So he pushed me. And actually, it was one of the loveliest experiences of my life. You know, I think the lesson to that, Barb, is if anyone ever asks you to sing the Hallelujah Chorus, you just go with it. <laughs> I don't think you have to be able to sing at all. It's one of those uh, one of those sublime participatory sports that's just, that's just so much fun. Okay, Barb, well... What about this standing thing? Like the tradition is that you're supposed to stand through the Hallelujah Chorus. Is is that grounded in anything? Well, there's a lot of controversy about this. Jan Swafford, who is a musicologist that both you and I like, yes, um, says that King the King George was there and stood, and because he stood, everybody stood. But the latest research says that that's probably not true. That there's no evidence that George ever went to hear Messiah. Um, and that the tradition of standing didn't start until some 37 years later. However, if you consider the Foundling Hospital, it was the place to be. When Handel did his Messiah there, they were oversubscribed. They couldn't get everybody in. Um, they, all the aristocrats wanted to be there because it was the place to be seen. And so if, if George was going to appear anywhere... He would likely have appeared at that Messiah. He would have been and there so, and it would have been standing room only. And it would have been standing room only. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of interesting because one of the books that I read said that it has become kind of a, um, a problem even in our day and age because people who stand look askance at people who don't and people who don't think that people who stand are wrong. And so, <laughs> so I think it's whatever tickles your fancy. Perfect. Barb, it's been so great to have you here today. As always, it's just uh, so much fun. And we invite anybody to uh, send us their thoughts about their favorite Messiah performance or their first time they heard the Messiah or any or a Hallelujah Chorus or anything related to what we've been talking about or even not related to what we've been talking <laughs> about. That's fine too. Uh, but please connect with us at westben at westben.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Barb, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Okay, see you next time.
for listening to this episode of Music for a While with Barb Hobart and Brian Finley. What do you think? Do you have a memory of your first Hallelujah Chorus? Just a reminder to send us your thoughts to westben at westben.ca to be featured in the next episode of Mailbag. Thank you again to Finley and Associates and Cameco for sponsoring this episode. We are so grateful for your support. If you are enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to share it with a fellow music lover. All of our digital content can be found at www.westbend.ca slash sunshine dash ahead. Head to westbend.ca and I'm sure you will find the page. This is the hub where you will see musical moments, little gifts from Brian, Donna, and the team that hopefully will bring you peace, West Bend Kids programs that can bring a little bit more music to days of online homeschooling, and so much more. This is Samantha Clark signing off. Remember, there is sunshine ahead.